everyone and welcome to Season 2 of Writer's Book Club Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Every month we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. Have you ever listened to an author interview and wished you could just jump inside the podcast and ask them a specific writing craft question about their novel? Well, this podcast lets you do exactly that. Just like a regular book club, we read the book and then you get to send in your writing questions for the author. Now, last year we covered a lot of fiction across many genres. Crime, historical romance, YA, literary, contemporary drama, comedy. But this year we're going to mix it up a little more. Starting with today's guest who wrote a memoir. Ashley Collagen Blunt's How to Be Australian is a clever, funny, heartwarming memoir and I devoured it in a weekend. It was only afterwards that I thought, hmm, what did she do to make me keep turning the pages? So of course I asked her in our interview and she told me all about the process she uses to plan scenes and how she makes them work to keep you turning the page. We also talked about the lessons from fiction that she took into her memoir writing, like plotting and drafting, and how she dealt with the inevitable, potentially awkward conversations you need to have with the real-life people who might appear in your memoir. Whether or not you're writing memoir, I think you'll get a lot out of today's interview. Ashley shared plenty of excellent advice and techniques that could apply to all kinds of writing. Now, before we dive into the interview, let me tell you a little bit about Ashley Collagen Blunt. She's an award-winning speaker, podcaster, writing teacher, and a prolific writer. She's published two books, How to Be Australian, the memoir we're discussing today, and My Name is Revenge, a thriller novella and collected essays which was shortlisted for a slew of awards. Her essays have appeared in Griffith Review, Sydney Review of Books, Overland, Australian Book Review, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, The Big Issue, Kill Your Darlings, The Canberra Times, and basically all the fabulous places where wonderful essays appear. So without further ado, here's Ashley Collagen Blunt. Ashley Collagen Blunt, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh my gosh, I've been looking forward to this so much. Thank you so much for welcoming me on. We've had a bit of a mutual podcast admiration society, haven't we? Because I love listening to you and James as well. And we'll talk a little bit about your podcast later, I hope. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Well, that's very lovely to hear. And I just think yours is such a brilliant idea. I just like, it's just such a great way to learn from other authors. Yeah, thank you. Um, Mutual admiration. Done. Tick. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Now, Ash, I absolutely loved your memoir, How to Be Australian. I thought I knew how to be Australian as an Australian. (laughs) But it really made me realise that we are so many cultures all rolled into one. And you're quite right in the memoir when you say that even though we speak the same language, there are so many differences between our cultures. What gave you the idea to write a book called How to Be Australian as a memoir? Oh, that's such, a, that's such an interesting question. So there's a like a years long answer to that question, but I'll give you the short version, which is that I spent a lot of years trying to write a book about Armenia, about my great grandparents' survival of the Armenian genocide. I had these really big ambitions for this book, and I interviewed uh, over 140 people on three continents. I wrote two master's theses. Like this was it was a huge thing, and I'd written this book. And it was shortlisted for a couple unpublished manuscript awards. And I had publishers, you know, would read the whole thing and give me and give me feedback. But what they 
told me was that uh, it, you know, there's just not enough of an audience in Australia for a book about Armenia. And so that was years of my life. And I, so I just I decided I want you know, to write another book because that's really, that's really the solution to any kind of problem is just, just, well, I'll just write another book. So I, so I decided to write a memoir because by that time I was living in Australia and there was this story of how my husband and I ended up here and ended up together because we, we got married right before we came to Australia. And it had taken me eight years to convince him to leave Canada. And as soon as, as soon as he agreed to that, then we were basically automatically engaged. Like there was no proposal because they were just like, oh, so then we'll get married next year. Like it was, <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a long story about that and it involves me living, like just basically giving up on him and, and leaving the country and going to live in Korea and Peru and Mexico. And the sort of, all our breakups and getting back together internationally. I wrote that memoir and I sent it to a manuscript assessor uh, for feedback. And she'd written this comment at the end of it, which was, uh, oh, you know, this is really enjoyable, whatever, whatever. You could write your next book about living in Australia. And when I saw that comment, I thought, well, I don't have anything to say about living in Australia, like certainly not enough for a book. But she sort of implanted that idea in my head. So when I had the the sort of romantic comedy memoir, when I had that ready and I was sending it out to publishers, I thought I'd been keeping notes on this idea of writing a memoir about Australia. So I was like, well, you know, maybe there's a few things I'd like to say. Maybe I could write a couple essays or whatever. And so I had this file of notes and I just kept adding to it. And one day I opened it up and I realized it was 20,000 words. And I thought, oh, maybe I do have things to say. You think? And then, and then when it was, but it was when the title came to me, it was when the title came to me, How to Be Australian. I was like, oh, that's, that's the focus of the book. And originally it was much less memoir and much more, it was actually going to be a, a collection of essays around different topics related to Australiana. And getting early feedback on it was when uh, I started to realize, oh, actually I needed to bring more and more and more of myself into it. Yeah, yeah. And you published a couple of those as as essays, didn't you, before Mm -hmm. the memoir was released? Yeah, I had one that came out in Griffith Review, which I was delighted about because, you know, Griffith Review is a fairly serious publication and they published this comedic essay. It was basically like my snake, sharks and spiders essay. (laughs) Uh, And and I was just, I was so delighted to have it in there. It's it's really fun. I learned a lot, actually, about Australian wildlife from your book. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) That's the secret of the book is that I... uh, Based on the title and the cover and everything, you think, oh, this is a book that's written for other migrants, like visitors. Actually, I wrote this book for Australians. I wanted to show Australians how, how crazy weird their country is and also how much I love it and how like all the things that I really do love about it. Yeah. So was How to Be Australian then a mashup of the relationship story and the How to Be Australian story? Did you end up combining the two? Basically, so the early versions did not have much of the relationship story in it, but because I sort of had to be there to sort of filter the perspective through, like the perspective had to come through a character, so it came through me. It's obviously my perspective. And a lot of my perspective had to also do with my husband's perspective because it was such a big thing that we moved here together. It had taken me, like I said, it took me eight years to convince him to come abroad. And we came on a one-year student visa. I did a master's degree. And I assumed that he, he, the whole point was I wanted him to experience life outside Canada. He'd grown up, not even a town, 
Michelle. He grew up in a uh, like on a property outside of a small town, and then he'd moved into like the local, you know, kind of mid-sized city, sort of an Adelaide-sized city in Winnipeg when he went to university and then he just so he stayed in that like 25 kilometer radius his entire life whereas I was a military kid and we moved all the time and not like moving was sort of how I made sense of the world and so I needed him to have the experience of, of moving outside of his comfort zone and outside of Canada and I wanted him to experience more of the world with me so that's why it was such a big deal that he came and then we were here so I thought I was gonna get this one year I'm gonna get this one year from him and that's it and then we came here and, and then he got this great job and he was like, oh yeah, it's, it's great here. Like, let's stay for a while. <laughs> and I was like, well, wait, I'm not, I wasn't ready for that. This is really far away from everything. What are we doing? I get the feeling that one, you're a traveler by heart. You're a roamer, aren't you? And he's a real homebody. So mm-hmm. I get the feeling that once he decided this was home, it was going to be really pretty difficult to uproot him again. Mm-hmm. But also he's a very career oriented person, which I, which I really respect. And I, and I think he's quite lucky because he has this sort of, you know, career arc that's that we, you know, he actually does things like make money. Uh, so <laughs> having a really good job here, I mean, really that's one of the key things that has kept us here is that he, he got this job and he got all these opportunities through his job and we're extremely grateful mm. uh, that, for that. So I think if the job situation had changed, that it, you know, it might've been different, but we were, we just, that was an incredible stroke of good luck. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about having your voice in there, but also uh, his voice. I wanted to ask you about voice. Is it hard to find your own voice when you're writing memoir? And once you've got that voice, do you find yourself censoring it? I mean, how do you approach voice? Oh, okay. So I wanted to clarify what you meant by censoring it. Oh, you know, sort of afterwards thinking, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or, you know, I write something and then I will go back and edit an email before I send it and and sort of censoring myself that way um, because I've revealed too much about myself or I've been a bit too emotional or I haven't been warm enough. You know, I might have been a little bit too clinical in my approach. So I just wondered if that was a problem for you or not a problem, but an issue when you're writing. It's really interesting. I decided very early on what the boundaries were in terms of what I would include and what I wouldn't include at a macro level, obviously, in terms of my personal life. And I, and I knew part of this story was mental health because I you know, I moved to this country for one year and we we're going to go to the beach. And we we're going to have all this fun. And, the, you know, the national motto is no worries. And I, and I genuinely, you know, had this really simplistic idea that, like, I could come here for a year and live that way. I think because also I had moved to other countries where I'd been there for one year. And then you, it just allows you to sort of focus in on your life. And then you just pack up all your things and you say goodbye and you leave. It's much easier to live a no worries lifestyle when you're only looking at your life one year at a time. But as soon as we were here beyond one year then all of a sudden I had to deal with all these adult things and and ideas and I was newly married and that's a whole different paradigm and so my mental health became a really big factor in how I experienced Australia and and how I overcame that so I, I knew that had to be part of the story so I think I I put really clear boundaries around that um but in terms of voice itself I think each voice 
so I have two books. I have How to Be Australian. My first book was My Name is Revenge, which is a very, very different book. And I think if you strip my name from the two books, no one would guess that they were by the same writer. And I think voice in memoir develops partly in response to the project. And I was actually going to read just two quick little excerpts from the oh, two books. Yes. I, I know, that. I know, I know my name is Revenge is outside of our brief. but I'm No, like, not at all. I think anything that teaches listeners about um, writing and particularly voice, because that's one of the hardest things for writers to, to nail, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's, it is like you said, I think it's all about going back and revising and revising and revising in, and I'm thinking about how the voice is contributing to the, the aim of the project or the, or the, the, you know, what the tone of the project is supposed yes, to be. Yes, tone. Yeah. So, okay. So this is, so we'll go back to the spiders and the snakes and the sharks. This is a little excerpt from, from uh, this chapter called Fear Has Seven Legs. Excellent. Steve and I only knew when the latest Australian shark attack had happened because my mother would call. I guess you haven't been to the beach lately, she'd say. Oh, we went on the weekend. What about the shark attack? Don't you read the news? Shark attacks in Australia routinely made the Canadian news. They were always in another city near Newcastle or Byron or Perth. I insisted to mom, I couldn't think of her as mum, that it was statistically unlikely I'd ever encounter a shark, particularly as I was in Australia to write a thesis, a predominantly desk-based desk activity. Don't worry, I said on the phone in the weeks before my parents' trip. We haven't seen any snakes or sharks and only some boring spiders. It'll be fine. My largest concern wasn't the wildlife attacking my parents. It was our housing situation. Knowing we'd likely only be here one year, Steve and I hadn't invested in much furniture. We'd bought a bed and desk secondhand and found discarded chairs and bookcases on the pavement. We didn't even have a couch. Worse, my parents were arriving in December, which led to this depressing real-life mass problem. If four adults spend one month in an apartment featuring a total of one bedroom and zero air conditioning units, how long will it take before one of them murders the other three? High school calculus did not prepare us for such equations. <laughs> Brilliant. I love that section. <laughs> so that's, that's an example from How to Be Australian. And I think a big factor in voice for that is that I was, when I started writing the book, I was doing stand-up comedy at the time. So some of the material from How to Be Australian actually originated in uh, as stand-up comedy jokes. Um, if you want to write humorously, being in front of a live audience and seeing what people respond to is the absolute best way to, to do that. But here's, here's an excerpt from, so My Name is Revenge is a novella and collected essays, and the essays mix memoir and history and journalism. And so this is a, just a short excerpt from one of the memoir essays called Life After Genocide, which is also originally published uh, by Griffith Review. I've been researching this history for 10 years now. At dinner parties and other gatherings, when asked what I do, I often mention it. My husband usually wanders off. He doesn't think genocide is an appropriate conversation topic at parties. Usually when he comes back, 30 or 40 minutes later, he finds I'm still talking. One night he took me aside. You shouldn't go on so long. You don't want to bore people. But I'm not the one pushing the topic. When people hear how similar the Armenian genocide is to the Holocaust, they struggle to understand why they know so much about one and nothing about the other. This is the power of Turkey's century of denial. 
So the voices are like very, very different. Very different, yeah. So I think in terms of developing voice, it's it's so much writing uh, and reading aloud. And I think even if if I were writing novels that were, you know, in different genres, for example, I would expect again to have to have quite different voices. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the idea that we have one voice—I mean, that might be true for some writers. But I think especially for writers who write fiction and nonfiction, like Elizabeth Gilbert and David Sedaris, I think you you need to adapt the voice to the project. And so it's sort of like as you shape the project, I think the voice develops in response to that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I love how you're a comedic foil for Steve, where <laughs> you've built him up a bit as the straight man and you're the, the comedic foil. <laughs> I mean, he's probably got a great sense of humour as well. And you have your serious side, but is that something that you played up in the memoir? I, uh, no, I think that's actually very genuine to our <laughs> to our lives. Because I mean, when I met him, he uh, very soon after got, got his first job as an accountant, and I was uh, in arts, you know, doing an arts degree. We met when I was eighteen, and he's a little older than I am. Uh, I, I started doing this arts degree. I was in a sketch comedy troupe. Like I think, like the me as the comedic silly. Um, force in the relationship and him as the career man I, th- I think has been there since the, the beginning yeah it's a perfect combination for memoir <laughs> isn't it <laughs> well I think I think also like it's easy for people to to see his point of view like it's easy for people yeah. to say of course you want a stable job and of course you want a stable home like why would why would you want to pack up all your possessions and move to a new country where you don't speak the language every every year like that was my plan if I hadn't gotten married to Steve I probably would have spent you know 10 years moving to different countries because um, that's what I was doing before we got married. Yeah, yeah. And you do a lovely bit of self-analysis in the, in the book about why you do that, why you have that wandering heart and people should definitely read it for that because I found that really moving. Um, now, Ash, how do you go about structuring a memoir? Do you have a narrative arc or a character arc in mind? Uh, well, when I decided it was to make it narrative as opposed to essay structure, I I knew that I had to contain it. So memoir, like biography is a story of someone's whole life and, and you know, most of us wouldn't write a biography unless we're famous. So with memoir, you, you sort of zero in on, on an aspect of your life. And I, for me, it felt like the most logical thing to do was to start with when we arrived in Australia and to go to when we got citizenship because that was sort of the key decision of the book was do we commit to this country and and if so what does that actually mean for us as individuals particularly for me as an individual because one thing I explore in the book is I feel like because Steve's so rooted in his career that that's actually where he draws so much of his identity from but because I ended up unemployed for quite a while and I was really like trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life it was a much bigger deal for me to try and find a sense of identity and belonging in my Australianness if we were going to actually commit to staying here. So in terms of structure, I, that was my like macro narrative was citizenship, effectively committing to the country. And then what I basically did was then explore, well, what's, okay, what's the character arc within that? So obviously there's, there's the external arc of going from arriving and knowing, I'd say less than nothing about Australia because I had a bunch of, I had a bunch of things that I thought I knew that I did not. 
to to getting citizenship, which is where you literally have to take a written test to prove that you do know some things. Uh, but what was the internal character journey going to be? And that was a lot messier to, to try and figure out. This book was written really in two phases. The early drafts of this book were, were very comedic. There was not a lot of the sort of deeper content, the emotional content, the relation, like the actually like the mental health, the relationship content. Uh, it was very, it was very, it was very lighthearted and jokey. And I wrote that while I was doing stand-up comedy. And then I got, in the midst of writing this book, I got diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, and I got extremely ill. And uh, that's its own long narrative. But there were a few months where, like, I was really too sick to even read. My short-term memory was so affected that I couldn't get from the start of one sentence to the end and remember enough to make sense of the words. Mm. So. This project was sort of sitting there waiting for me. And when I got well enough to work on it for 20 minutes at a time, I was home all day alone and really, really struggling. All our families in Canada mm. didn't have any friends that were really, like a lot of people offered to help me. And a lot of people were really gorgeous and beautiful, but there was, I didn't have friends that I felt like, oh, I really want people to see me in this state. Mm. So I was extremely alone and that's when all the all the more heartfelt and the deeper emotional stuff was was written and um i think i haven't actually been able to write comedy since then i that i stand up was one of the first things i lost because i didn't have the energy in the evenings to to go and do things i didn't have the energy to remember my my set um and so it gave me it, it forced me to get a lot more in touch with the deeper emotions yeah now, I wouldn't recommend that as a strategy for other people. <laughs> what I would say is in terms of structure, what I did was I wrote a whole bunch of stuff in early drafts, just like got tons and tons of stuff on the page. My first draft was probably, I don't know, 70,000 words, of which I maybe kept 20. And this is, this is my process is to write a lot of words wow. and then review it and see, okay, what am I actually saying here? What am, I, what am I actually trying to engage with? And what am I actually talking about? And how can I go from that to a series of scenes that make sense. And that's then as I built up, you know, from those, from that first draft, as I built up a plan for the, for the narrative, for, for the internal character arc, uh, for, and then looking at scenes sort of step-by-step step, because I really, really focus on, on uh, micro plotting, like at the scene level, like how each scene, what is each scene doing in terms of character development, in terms of plot development, I have a spreadsheet for that. Uh, in those drafts, then I build up. That's when, I, and that's where I'm drawing everything from fiction. So the other thing I think that's really important in terms of what, like, what was happening in my life when I was writing How to Be Australian, is I also, I had applied. I sort of was thinking about doing a PhD in creative writing, and I applied uh, to a few programs, and I was offered a scholarship. Uh, at Macquarie, now they, you got, I couldn't go straight into a PhD. I had to do a one-year master's first, and it was sort of a pathways to PhD program. So I was doing this one-year master's, and I had to write something creative for it. And I'd had this question from from the from the Armenia project. I had this question in my mind about this series of terrorist attacks that happened in the 1970s related to the denial, and in particular, a terrorist attack that happened here in Sydney. Uh, in Dover Heights, where the Turkish consul general and his bodyguard were assassinated in broad daylight by, a Turk, uh, by an Armenian uh, by an Armenian group of um, terrorists, and 
they've never been caught. It's still, it's still unsolved. And so I, that was the project I wanted to do as part of the masters. And so I was writing this novella, I was writing fiction and I'd sort of put how to be Australian on the side. This was before I got sick and I, I was, but I would sort of, when I got really frustrated with the, you know, the master's degree and the master's research and when writing a serious thesis, I would sort of sneak away and work on how to be Australian and work on my comedy act. Bit of light relief, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Actually, it worked really well. Um, but because I was doing this novella, I took a course with Tony Jordan on plotting. Ah, oh, she's wonderful. Oh, she's, yeah, she's brilliant. And it was actually, so novellas are really hard to get published. This is, this is a known thing about novellas. However, I think it's actually really smart. If you want to learn how fiction works and you want to learn how to plot, a novella is a great way to do that because it's short and contained. And so you can, you can basically like rewrite the whole thing in several months. My novella is only um, 14,000 words. So you can, you can, you know, rewrite it over and over. Mm. And that's where I learned how to plot. And that's where I learned how to do a macro narrative. And, and then I took all of that, that I learned from this novella of, that's written from the point of view of a terrorist. And I put all of that in there to how to be Australian because I had realized, oh, this is how this all works. This is the structure, particularly at the, the, the micro level, the scene level is the engine of the story. It's what drives the story. And so it doesn't matter how good your characters are and how beautiful your setting is and how brilliant your sentence structure is and innovative and fresh and creative. If you don't have structure working at both the macro and the scene level, your book's not going to go anywhere. That's so interesting. So we were going to talk about what sort of lessons you got from fiction, and that's clearly one of them. Mm. So for you, when you sit down to write a scene, what happens? Okay, so I would generally be drawing the ideas for that scene from earlier drafts where I've just let myself make a mess. I, if I worry okay. about scene structure too early, I can't go anywhere because there's too many questions. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. Yeah, so the, the novel I'm currently working on uh, and the next one that I've just started, what my process is, is to write... 40, 50, 60,000 words where I've just like, I've got some ideas and I'm playing around with them. I'm like, well, maybe this thing could happen. And then halfway through, I'll be like, oh no, that thing shouldn't have happened. This other thing should happen. So I'll just assume in my head, I'm like, okay, well, let's just pretend that thing happened and I'll just go forward from there. So no one can read it and make any sense of it. <laughs> but what I am doing though, is I am, I, actually this, this is a key thing. What I am doing is taking some of those scenes uh, from that mess and, and shaping them a little bit and giving them to my writer's group. So sort of, I might be like, I think this could be the first chapter or this would be somewhere in the middle, but here's the deal with these two characters at this point, because I want other people to weigh in on it before I go too far down the wrong path. And, and my writer's groups, I have two writer's groups where we, where we exchange chapters in advance, we read them in advance, we give written comments, then we get together and we talk about, um, we talk about sort of our, our, our bigger issue, our bigger sort of questions. Uh, and that's just been, like, I, I need that to write because I need someone else to be like, why would that character ever do that? Yeah. Or, or, you know, just, I, I, it really helps me to have people weigh in at that point. And so then, okay, so now I've got, I've got my mess. That's when I start my spreadsheet. And that's when I say, okay, I'm going to actually go and template each scene for the whole book. So for my current novel, I went from my, my mess of 60, 70,000 words to a scene by scene template of 15,000 words. And that was each scene 
what are the five parts of the scene? So, you know, we think of things as having a beginning, middle, end, but actually scenes need to have five parts. Um, so what are the five parts of the scene? And that, you know, one of those parts is always uh, the, the scene builds to a choice. The main, the main character of that scene, generally speaking, has to make a choice. And the, then we need to see the, the, you know, the results of that choice. So what choice is being made in that scene? How is the scene, you know, is the scene starting positive and ending negative? Is the scene starting negative and going double negative? So what's the valence of the scene? I'm also looking at what are the character motivations and like what does the character expect to happen when the scene starts? Because generally I want to circumvent that. Um, so I've, then I've got my template and I've shaped that all out. I've seen how that plays out across the narrative now. And then I sit down and I will actually write that scene the way I hope it will be, you know, in some form yep. in the final story. And I, I have to be willing at that point still to throw out entire scenes, which I'm still like, I'm in I'm doing a significant revision of this current novel right now. And I'm still removing some scenes and writing entirely new scenes yeah. where I'll start from, I'll start from that template that I've got. Yeah. So I'm just thinking of how to be Australian. There are certain times where you say, I want to go to Darwin, for example, and I don't know if Steve is going to want to come with me. So that is that sort of like the central question and how is that going to affect my relationship and what's going to happen when I get back and what's going to happen obviously during the the trip to Darwin that's a great example so I went to Darwin uh the chapter is called welcome to the wet I just opened it up and the, there's so there's there's often multiple things you know happening in terms of the character arc but so in this scene the goal is to experience Darwin at this point I'm traveling on my own because I realized Steve isn't going to travel with me um, nearly as much as I want he's not interested in um I mean you know like I was when I was young and naive I pictured marriage is like oh we're married so now we do everything together forever <laughs> and one of the things I learned after a few years is like well screw that like if I want to go to Darwin and Steve doesn't want to go I'm still going to go to Darwin yeah uh, especially because I was teaching at university at that time so I had a whole lot more holiday than he did I had a lot more flexibility than he did yeah and you actually ask the question in the first couple of paragraphs which aspect of my solo traveling was most helping me the travel or the solo and that's a great setup well thank you at this point in the macro narrative the, one of the bigger mm. questions is like are things going to work out with Steve because that's effectively one of like one of the themes of the book is really like how do you know how do you make a relationship last? Like at this point, we've been together well, probably 14 years, uh, like including the eight years that we dated. And um, it was that sort of like, we're transitioning from young adults to more, you know, more mature adults. And how do we make that work together? So in the Northern Territory chapter, uh, uh, there's two Northern Territory chapters, actually. One of them is just experiencing Darwin. Uh, and then the second one is that we go up to Victoria Falls to swim. And in the swimming chapter, there's sort of a backstory about how Steve taught me to swim when we were in Australia, against my, against my wishes. <laughs> he sort of forced, forced me to learn to swim, even though I fought him every step of the way. And I'm so grateful because yeah. I love swimming so much now. And so I, I was reflecting on this gift that he had given me, like, 
that you know he he's not effusive he's not romantic he had sort of settled into this daily existence where work was the most important thing in his life and I felt very secondary but then I realized I'm like no if you think about it actually there's all these beautiful things that he does that they're just not like oh flowers on Valentine's Day or whatever or like your romantic dinner dates but actually like he gave you the gift of swimming and now you're in this incredible place and you get to do this incredible thing and so the decision there was to turn in towards the marriage effectively and I think that's one difference like that's one great example of that the difference between certain types of fiction and and most memoir is that memoir is more like literature where your turns and your scenes are probably going to be quieter they're probably going to be you know smaller like a turn like in a in a thriller book like a, a classic yeah. turn is like oh there's been another murder like probably most memoirs hopefully aren't aren't going to have those kind of turns and so the challenge of memoir is zeroing in on those quieter moments and bringing the power of them to to life in the chapter. Yeah, I think that's why I enjoyed it so much because they're the sorts of books I enjoy both in fiction and non-fiction, those themes of love and belonging and identity and marriage and, you know, all the little daily incidents that those things pivot on. I love all of that. It's riveting because you just are so invested emotionally. And I was very emotionally invested in your memoir. You said before that your chronic fatigue syndrome hit in the middle of writing that. And I could feel that emotion on the page. Oh. I wanted to dive in and basically say, I'm here. I'll, give, I'll come and give you a hug. I'll come. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Which is so interesting because the fatigue is never mentioned in the book. I know, the book ends it's in not. 2016. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the emotion... And I didn't know, actually, because I know that you do suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome, but I didn't know whether that was during the writing of this book or when that had actually occurred in relation to this book. But I could feel the emotion on the page. Um, And at times your loneliness and your emotional struggles. And, oh, it just made me want to go back in time and say, I'm here. I'll be here for you. I'll be your friend. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. That's so sweet. Thank you. Actually, I had a, I had a friend in Canada after she read it. She's like, your book made me really angry. What? That you're not here. <laughs> she's like, then I, then, like, I can't like just talk to you every day. Yeah, she wanted <laughs> to look after you. Yeah, yeah. it was very sweet. It was yeah. very sweet. <laughs> but some, some battles you do have to undertake on your own or have to come to terms with on your own before you can allow others in. Mm. And that, I think that was one of the biggest challenges was actually the chronic fatigue syndrome was the biggest crisis of our marriage mm. because um well for various reasons um but basically and I've talked about this in other essays that my you know Steve Steve is not emotional at all like he's he's very he's very English he's very um practical and so there was practically nothing he could do to help me and and he wouldn't express any emotion just like and I was I was super sick and it also happened at a time when he was basically working two full-time roles at his job and so was you know away 12 or 14 hours a day and I was exceptionally alone so I was I was pouring all of this emotion into those scenes um even though I was writing about a different time in our marriage that those emotions were very very real Mm, to me mm. those themes of identity and belonging and even career choices and those 
awful pivotal moments where we just wonder, I've invested so much time in this. Is it time to actually cut and run or stick with, you know, all of those themes were so relevant to me and probably to a lot of other people. Did they emerge from the writing or were they things that you specifically wanted to write about in the memoir? A lot of them emerged from the writing because Mm. when I started the book, because I was picturing it as essays, you know, I thought I'd have one essay about like Australian vocabulary and (laughs) the words I love versus the words I refuse to use and, and what I thought certain uh, idioms meant, you know, like when I, when I had to guess what they were and things I can't pronounce. And you can see those things now are sort of woven through through the chapters. So that was originally how I envisioned it, was this series of really lighthearted, like goofy, goofy topics. And as I got into it, I mean, belonging, belonging and identity were always going to be there, but it became became a much bigger theme in part because I realized in the writing of it that if I was writing this more sincere book about Australia where I was like sincerely engaging with the topic of citizenship I had to then write about the aspects of Australia that I don't love and that I think a lot of us don't love and how those factored into my understanding of Australianness. and so that was a big challenge because I didn't want the book to be political but also everything is political mm. by nature and and I'd written this other book about my parents being genocide survivors and and being able to come to Canada, not as refugees, because Canada was not accepting refugees, particularly Asiatic, quote unquote, refugees in 1920, but that they just happened to be lucky enough to have a relative there who who had a job and therefore could pay the exorbitant fees to, to allow them into the country. But if if they were, you know, Rohingyan today and they were and they were refugees, then they'd be sitting in in on Manus Island or where like so I had to engage with those themes I couldn't turn away from them even though just the the tone around that that was the hardest part of the book was how do I pull in these heavier themes mm. um and I was so so lucky that I uh, got to talk to a First Nations Australian about his understanding of identity and he gave me a really really generous interview but he also happens to be you know a competitive pole dancer yes. so there was <laughs> there was a tone of lightheartedness like I what it wasn't a conversation that was that was so so heavy he had a great sense of humor and but had also had the additional challenge of of you know not being a straight guy so his his sexual identity had presented another layer of of um challenge in terms of how did he experience his identity and belonging not only in australia but also in his own community mm-hmm. gosh we could talk about that side of things it's possibly serendipitous that we're talking on the day after the day that shall not be named on january 26 <laughs> but that provided actually some of the conflict and i wanted to talk to you about conflict because compelling writing as we know Uh, normally contains conflict Um, the wildlife provided the drama (laughs) Um, but the relationship issues and uh, the whether we will stay or not stay and the citizenship roller coaster and Mm -hmm. you know that whole central question about if we're saying yes to living in Australia we're basically saying no we're not going to be around for our potentially aging parents in the future and I haven't seen my nieces and nephews growing up and all of that sort of stuff and it's such a 
you know, enormous levels of conflict in all of that. Was that something that you deliberately wove in, make sure that there were always stakes rolling along? I mean, I hate to to be clinical about the writing process, but... No, be clinical. That's how good writing happens. I I really believe good writing, you have to be analytical and you have to be clinical. Yeah. Um, Yes. So there's two, there's two little sticky notes that I kept on my computer until now they're like just you know, tattooed on my brain. And one is conflict structures narrative. Like there's basically, there's no narrative without conflict. There's just like exposition, reflection. Uh, and the other one is something I took from author Pamela Cook, which is tension on every page. And that's uh, from um, New York literary agent Donald Mass. Uh, so tension on every page and conflict structures narrative. and you know, when I talk about scene structure, that's that's right at the heart of it. So actually, I have a little reading that I wanted to do. It's a few pages. Yes, please. But basically, so, the, you know, the three levels of conflict are uh, interpersonal conflict, which that one's the easiest. And then there's internal conflict, you know, within the self, within the protagonist, and then there's environmental conflict. And the best scenes are where all three of those, there's, there's interplay with all three of those. So I wanted to read a scene. I love is, that. That's such good stuff. And this is what I mean, actually, like fiction and memoir are not that different in a lot of ways when we're talking about the craft of writing. Mm. There are a whole bunch of different considerations with memoir. And I think, you know, you've had some questions from your listeners that we can address related to some of those. But in terms of in terms of the craft, in terms of the scene by scene, you use all the same techniques and strategies and that's why I feel I feel comfortable writing both fiction and memoir I can move between the two because of that mm-hmm. so okay here's this excerpt so this is from this is early 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 in our time in Australia and I'll just preface if you haven't read the book uh, I was in Winnipeg and it was a minus 40 winter it was minus 40 for three months that winter and that's minus 40 Celsius and it was just horrendous. And that was the winter I it was in university and I was taking the bus to university. It was the worst. <laughs> and I slipped and fell on the ice and I was lying there in a snowbank and I was like, I'm leaving this country. Like I am I am out of here as soon as I graduate. And, and that is a true that is a true story. Um, so this and I, and I pictured this like, oh, I'm gonna go live in this warm place, I'm gonna go to the beach every day, it's gonna be beautiful. So this is us, Steve and I, you know, we've well, a few months into Australia, it's starting to get hot. We're, we're going to Bondi, going to Bondi Beach. So we're on Bondi and it is not how I pictured. Um, Steve's moles appeared to have grown several centimeters since my last glance. I could practically see the cancer cells. I struggled to breathe. The beach and everyone on it seemed to press up against me. You're supposed to be enjoying yourself. I held the heel of my hand against my sweaty sternum, trying to force my heart to slow through sheer will. Another couple about our age sat a few meters away. They had the same pecan brown hair as Steve and I, though hers was stylish, somehow tame in the humidity. They sat side by side, facing the waves. Though I couldn't overhear them, it was clear they were having a lively conversation. He was telling a story, making animated gestures. She threw her head back, laughing. I doubted they were talking about sunburn. Closer to the water, a girl of about three played with her mum. Wearing purple water wings, she hovered on the edge of the surf, splashing in the shallow water, giggling and racing away when the waves approached. Maybe that was the secret. To have that level of beatific ease, you had to be born here. Next to us, someone reached over and turned up the music. 
Reggae pounded in my ears like tiny rhythmic jackhammers. Teeth gritted, I poked Steve in the arm. I can't handle this. He pushed himself up on his elbows. We've only been here an hour. You're burning. I pressed my fingertip harder on Steve's arm. The patch of tomato red skin turned bright white, then re-reddened as I raised my finger. It took us ages to get here, Ash. Let's just move somewhere quieter. We gathered our towels, flip-flops, and bags, and picked our way through sprawled limbs and naked toddlers and frisbee games, walking unevenly over the hot sand. At the beach's south end, where the rock met the, excuse me, at the beach's south end, where the sand met the rocky cliff edge, we dropped our things. I shook my towel and let it drift onto the sand. My left hand felt oddly light. Despite being crusted in sand, my fingers felt naked. I glanced down. My wedding rings, the rings Steve had custom designed and engraved with our names and wedding date, were not on my finger. Despair punched through me. I could forfeit most of my material possessions easily, but I loved those rings. More than feeling distressed at my own stupidity, I felt the symbolic significance of losing my rings on the beach. I sank to my knees, crying into my hands. Steve's Englishness went on red alert. In his view, crying in public is barely acceptable behavior for babies, let alone grown women. Crying in private was likewise unacceptable, but at least there was no audience. He stood in front of me, trying to conceal my rampant emotions. Stop it, he said. What's wrong? Before we'd left the apartment, Steve had reminded me to take my rings off. Twice. I'd still forgotten. How could I admit I'd lost them? I waved my hand and gestured towards where we'd been sitting. I stumbled to my feet. I needed to get back up the beach as fast as possible. Stop crying. I can't understand you. Did you step on a stone? This made me cry harder. I flapped my hand at him again. My ring's there. I don't know. On the beach, I think. Steve slapped his hands onto his head as if to keep the top from popping off in a frustration. He grabbed our beach bag and started back towards the magenta tent. I struggled behind him, suffocated by the noise and heat and people. My thoughts tumbled over themselves. I said, don't wear your rings to the beach. I know. Then why did you take them off here? The sunscreen makes them slimy. Less than 10 minutes had passed by the time we arrived back at the patch of sand between the reggae lovers and the bronze blondes. My rings weren't in sight. And I'll skip to the end here. Before the shaggy haired man with the metal detector came and worked his way back and forth across the sand, I wasn't sure we'd find the rings, but I was certain they were there somewhere, just out of sight. 20 minutes later, when the guy gave up and left to continue his search for loose change or landmines or whatever, I accepted that the rings were no longer there. Someone had taken them and that was it. They were gone, which wasn't an ideal precursor to me telling Steve that I wasn't sure I could stay in Australia. Oh, Ash. <laughs> so the, the part of the, that's a totally true story, the only part of it that's, that's not in there is that that was also Christmas Eve. Yeah. I love the tension in that as well. All the little build-ups, you know, we're not having a good time. I'm worried about the sunburn. Um, and then the rings and having to tell him. And <laughs> it's just... And also, you can't bring yourself to say thongs for flip-flops, can you? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I just don't think of it. I just don't... Because in Canada, it means underwear. I know. So, so <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just it's not, just not what I think of. Um, but yeah, I think I picked that example to, to, in terms of conflict because all the layers of conflict are there, and even the interpersonal conflict um, isn't just with Steve, but it's with all, like all the other people on the beach. There's conflict with everything. So here's an example of a detail that um, where I edited out the truth, which is that the rings. I then there's a description of the rings in there, but I cut it just for brevity. But my rings were cubic zirconia. And there's a whole long story there, which is that actually I'm not that keen on material possessions. And I, I think that diamonds are, you know, environmentally destructive and, and, and culturally destructive and, and, and just a waste of money. So I, I didn't want rings at all. I've written an essay about this that was in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, but Steve's very traditional and he, he felt like if I didn't have an engagement ring, people would think he was cheap. <laughs> like wow okay well I guess I have to have one then um so we compromised and uh we got these gorgeous rings real real gold but uh cubic zirconia and the money that he would have spent on a diamond we uh, donated it to the organization that I had volunteered with in Peru and they set up um medical appointments and dentist appointments for for children there oh, for I impoverished love kids. that Ash that's brilliant well, and see, that's, I wanted that in the book because I feel like that says a lot about who Steve and I are as people yeah. But everyone said that completely cuts the tension of you losing the rings because suddenly for the reader, it's not such a big deal that because it's like, oh, well, you know, just replace them. And that wasn't the point. The point was the, the shame and horror I felt at having not listened to him and and ruined our day mm-hmm. and also now ruined like whenever I go to Bonnet Beach, I think about losing those rings. <laughs> so it's an example of how the truth just did not work in the narrative. So I let I let the reader assume that they're diamonds. I refer to them as the stones. And then you can assume, like the reader will just assume that they're diamonds. Yeah, Actually, right. they're, and you know, the rings were still worth something because there was quite a bit of gold, but it wasn't the financial um, issue that no. was really the problem. It was, it was the sentimental yeah. issue. Yeah, so what you're saying is it would have shifted the focus away and pulled people out of the, the tension, basically. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Because they're, they're thinking about the financial costs because yes. for them it's like, oh, we'll just replace them. And that's a great example of how having a writer's group is so good because I've got four other people reading this chapter in my writer's group. If one of them had said, take out that detail, I might have been like, oh, but I really like that detail. <laughs> but when all of them said, take out that detail, I was like, oh, you guys are right. Okay, fine, I'll take it out. It's got to go. <laughs> I think that's called killing your darlings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then I turned that into an essay. So yeah. I actually took that and I was like, well, this is something I feel really strongly about and I actually would like to share it because I do think, I mean, I think it'd be great if people, instead of getting diamonds, donated money to yeah. causes that matter to them. Like, wouldn't that wouldn't that make, like, be amazing? Um, so it's like, I feel strongly about this. I want to put it in an essay. Yeah, no, I love that. One other note I'll make about the rings on Bonai Beach is in terms of the scene structure, obviously the scene begins, you know, we arrive at the beach. It builds to the point where I realize I've lost the rings. So it starts negative because the beach experience isn't good, but then it turns turns basically double negative because now this terrible thing has happened on this already bad day. And that turn forces the crisis question, which is, well, now what do I do? Because Steve told me not to bring the rings. Uh, he warned me about this, but if I don't say anything, how am I going to find them? Like I have, then I have no chance of finding them. So I, I wrestle with that crisis and then I make a decision, which is, okay, obviously I have to tell Steve. And then the next part of the scene is 
okay, what's the fallout of telling him? Oh, well, now we go back and we search for them. We find the guy with the metal detector. And then the ending of each scene is should end on some sort of um, resolution that is effectively a coda that sort of reflects on maybe the bigger meaning of the scene or, or, or engages with the broader themes. And so in that scene, it's just that one line, which is where I, I bring back the theme of, oh, you know, this isn't a good precursor for saying that I don't want to tell Steve that I don't want to stay here. So it just adds to the bigger narrative arc at that point. It, it puts that scene in perspective there. So that's another example of how I had to dig into that moment of, of losing the rings and, and structure it and shape it so that it's a functioning scene rather than just a thing that happened. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you about that idea of truth in memoir. So mm. would you call How to Be Australian creative nonfiction? Or is it pure men? Like, what is the difference? How do you see those genre distinctions? Oh, I think I, I think memoir is a like a creative nonfiction is an umbrella term mm. of which memoir is one is you know one subgenre effectively because there's there's no way to take real life and put it and put it on the page and and then be like this is the ultimate truth. There's always that element of crafting. Now, how much crafting goes into it? You can, you know, look at different memoirs and expect different levels of attention to truth. So, for example, I'm reading uh, Chanel Miller's Know My Name. She was a victim of sexual assault on campus in uh, the United States and went through that whole rape trial. And her memoir is brilliant. And a memoir like that, I would expect that, you know, any date she refers to, any fact she refers to, that, that those are all the absolute truth. But she's still obviously shaping a narrative. Whereas, you know, someone like, like Zoe Norton Lodge, who's a, a comedic writer, um, you know, read her memoir. And I, I like, I don't care if any of it's true. And it's just, you know, it's called, her memoir is called Almost Sincerely. And it's a series of comedic essays. Because I'm, I'm not reading it for the truth of, oh, like in, in kindergarten, did you actually like spill your milk on the teacher? Like, that doesn't matter to me. What matters is like, is this funny? And does it resonate? because um, that's what I'm reading it for. So with my memoir, you know, the, the facts of it, no one cares about the facts of it. Like that's not, no one's going to it and being like, I really want to know what Ashley was doing on March 3rd, 2014. That's really matters to me. Um, so there's a, especially with the timeline, like I've shifted a lot of things around with the timeline to make them work in terms of the narrative arc. And, you know, the book presents this really simplified, we arrived and we both loved it. But then Steve wanted to say, and Ashley wasn't sure that she loved it. And then later on, oh, character reversal. Now Ashley really wants to stay and Steve's not sure he wants to. Whereas in reality, we have both gone back and forth on that, you know, sometimes minute to minute. So the, the emotional truth is all there. And the emotional honesty is all there. But there's so much shaping and crafting that goes into making it work as a narrative. Yeah. And and you can tell because it's very pacey. I couldn't put it down. I think I messaged you afterwards and said, <laughs> put it down. <laughs> that's so, that's, remember I said about the valence of scenes, yes. how like some scenes start positive and turn negative. It's those, um, you know, valence turns. That's what, that's what creates pace. And obviously having narrative questions that, that people want answered. But it, it, that pace comes from, I, I was amazed when I discovered that because that pace comes from the, from the microplotting. And that's, I, that's what I put in the spreadsheet. I have columns for how my scenes are turning. 
So I make sure there's not too many that start positive and not too many in a row and not too many that end negative in a row. It's always it's always switching. Do you maybe have a resource that we could share and put in the yes. show notes? Um, I always recommend, I get a lot of these terms I use, like scene valence comes from the story grid by Sean Coyne. Oh, yes. Uh, and they have, I mean, they're a whole industry now. They have their own podcast. They have their own courses. They have their own everything. And it can be a little bit overwhelming. Uh, but I recommend Tony Jordan. I don't know if she's teaching anymore, which is such a huge loss. But if Tony Jordan ever runs a plotting course, man, do it. Take that course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was from Tony Jordan's plotting course that I then went on to start um, researching that more in depth. And yeah, the, the story the story grid is is sort of my Bible. And they, they teach you how to do that spreadsheet. And uh, you have to be really analytical and clinical. And I think I think some people don't think that's what writing is. If you want to be really creative in your language and you want to have that freedom, I think that's what those early drafts are for. And that's what, you know, generative writing exercises are for. But if you want to make a narrative work, like a long form narrative, that's where you need the plotting and that's where you need the structure. Because you get all the creativity out in that big first messy draft, don't you? That's mm. where the creativity comes in and then you apply the structure. And then I guess at the end, then you come back in and you refine the voice. And, and in this kind of case, I refine the jokes. And yeah, so there's these phases, but that plotting phase is to me is the most important. Yeah, yeah. Now we had a couple of listener questions um, and I think I'll combine them. So huge thanks to Petronella McGovern and Jen Pritchard for sending in this question along the same line. So Petronella asked, how did Ashley manage writing about her husband and other friends and family? Was there a lot of discussion and compromise? Um, and Jen asked how you write about other people in the story. They will recognize themselves, even if the names are changed, I'd imagine. So she's asking that as a question. So what do you say to that, Shash? <laughs> yeah, that's a great memoir-specific question. And, and I think the answer for this is going to be different for every memoir writer, because this is mostly a lighthearted book. So it wasn't hard for me to go to friends and say, hey, remember that time I visited you in Perth? Well, I wrote, you know, I wrote about it. And we had all that fun when we went to that um, footy game and I had no idea what was going on. And, and let me send you this chapter and um, if you could please read it and let me know, you know, if you're okay with this. And I'm happy to, I'm, I tell people, I'm happy to change your name if you want your name changed. I don't say that I'm necessarily willing to change any of the, any of the details. Like that's, you know, that's something we can negotiate, but it's not a, it's not a blanket. Like I'll just change whatever you want. Um, but I certainly, and there are people in here who's, um, I've changed their names. There's a couple characters uh, that are composites, and you know that comes back to like creative. Like, is this how is it creative nonfiction? Well, it's composite characters which simplify the narrative for the reader. Um, whereas in like a book like Chanel Miller's Know My Name, like I'm expecting those aren't composite. I'm expecting those are based on you know the actual defense attorney and the actual rapist. So for for me, I wrote. The book and when I had it in a place and basically when I had a publisher then I went to friends and I said and a lot of them knew in advance and I said like here's the chapter where you appear and I just sent them that chapter and I said let me know I knew my parents didn't want to be written about a lot and my editor actually asked if I could put in more of my parents yeah. and that was one thing I said I said no I, they don't want to be yeah. on the page more so I, I'm not willing to do that and that was fine um so but with Steve because Steve was you know it's funny with Steve because I never, I never asked to write about him. I just, I just wrote about him for years, 
And he, and I mean, like when we started dating, I was in this, like a sketch comedy troupe and then I was doing stand-up comedy. So he was used to me like talking about us in public. Didn't love it. Uh, so, and also I've been writing books. Like I wrote that whole other book about the two of us, like about our romantic comedy arc that we lived. And I think he wasn't expecting it to get published. I think, I think that's the thing. I think he was fine with me writing it because I'd been writing for what? When this book came out, I'd been writing for seriously for 10 years. Um, and my name is Revenge had just come out the year before. So that nine years I wrote seriously. So I think he was just like, oh yeah, write whatever you want. <laughs> and then, so I said to him, I said, you have to read it because he didn't want to read it because okay. he said, quote, I lived it. Why would I need to read it? <laughs> so wow. I was like, I think you should read it. Um, That's a I huge just, amount of trust. Well, <laughs> He's not, I mean, he's not the big, he, he is a big reader, but he yeah. reads mostly business books, right? Yeah. So this is, like, I can't think of another memoir other than Bill Bryson. So I got him to read it. And basically he read it, ignored all the heartfelt, emotional, you know, lovely stuff that I put about him and picked out jokes about himself that he didn't like. And he's like, you have to cut that. You have to cut that. You know? <laughs> like, so he got, lost a lot of good jokes. But he, he was the one person because he's the other main character. So I was like, okay, I'll, I like, obviously I'm going to cut those things. Um, so, and he's been really good about it. Because the question I always get is, how does your husband feel about your memoir? And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's a fair question. <laughs> but he was, he was a special guest at my, at my Zoom book launch. And he was a real hit with the audience. I bet. Shades of Bill Bryson, actually. Mm. Ash- mm. Oh, yeah, Ashley. I yes. love Bill Bryson, but it, yes. yeah, is he a big influence? Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Anyone who loves Bill Bryson should definitely read this book. You'll love it. Uh, well, see, I think the thing is, if Bill Bryson had written about Steve's life, Steve would have said the same thing. He'd be like, yeah. I lived it. Why would I need to read it? <laughs> And then he wants veto over the jokes. Well, exactly, I know. <laughs> maybe you should have just taken his word. Oh, sure, no problem. I'll just um, go and publish. <laughs> That's true. He wouldn't know. I never thought of that, Michelle. You're clearly a more devious mind than I am. Oh, my God. I couldn't have done it, though, I would have to say. Look, you have to read it. I'm sorry. I don't want something in the public domain that you are really going to hate because he might not read it, but somebody else might read it and say, ah, oh, how did you feel about that time she said X, Y, Z about you? <laughs> I think it's one of the things we live in such different worlds that I think, I mean, other than family members, mm. I think he doesn't expect anyone in his life to just encounter the book and pick it up and read it. Like that's, I think that's so far from, you know, the, like the two worlds we live in are so separate because yeah, uh, yeah. everyone, I'm sure everyone that he's interacting with is also just reading business books. Yeah. Yeah. So. Ash, do you have any other words of wisdom to impart to potential memoirists? I think to not worry about any of that, any of like, what's so-and-so going to think? And what's, what you know, like, should I write this or, or do I need to, like, I, I was very clear about what I wouldn't write about when I started. So there's, uh, and I think one of the reasons that Steve is comfortable with the book being out there is for example there's nothing but our your sex life in there like that was that was one of the things I was like I'm just not going to write about that um so if you're looking for a sexy read it's not this one (laughs) so it's perfectly fine to set those kind of boundaries in terms of like what am I willing to talk about what am I not willing to talk about at the beginning of a project but after that sort of just like just let yourself explore things on the page without the worry and even if you know you're multiple drafts into it like when I ended up getting publisher, in our structural edit, we took out 10,000 words 
I added, I wrote 19,000 new words of various chapters. The chapter on Melbourne wasn't in the original draft, the chapter on Queensland wasn't in the original draft. I wrote all this new material, and then we cut another 10,000 words, I think. Wow. So it ended up being about the same word count, but it still went through huge changes. So, you know, if I'd worried about so-and-so appearing in chapter eight, and then chapter eight ended up being completely cut. Might not have happened, yeah. All that worry for nothing, yeah. Exactly. So I think just let yourself explore the project and let it shape itself on the page. And then, you know, worry about those things when they, when they need to be worried about. Um, yeah, that's great advice. And what are you working on now? You, you, you talked about a novel, two novels. Mm, yes, I'm writing, I'm writing a psychological thriller. So I've sort of gone back to where I started with My Name is Revenge because the novella in that is, is, a, is a crime thriller. And I've always, this, this is the thing, this has been my whole career, is like, oh, I, I, you know, wasn't brave enough to write this novella from the point of view of this terrorist. Um, and I, then I sort of so I pushed myself to do that. And then same with the Australia book was a huge experiment. because so I was like, oh, I don't think I'm funny enough to write comedy. But I was like, well, there's no harm in trying. I guess I'll just give it a try and see if I can do it. And I've always, always, always loved crime thrillers, like, love them. And, but I never, ever thought I'd write one because I was like, I'll never be able to write a crime thriller because, uh, you know, they're just so complex and they have to be like, like, so like pacey. And um, there's all these conventions that you have to like figure out how to, how to make work. Because with the memoir, it's like, oh, this is, this is my life. And as long as I'm sharing emotional truths that will resonate and, and keeping it engaging, you know, it will find readers. With a crime thriller, it's like, no, like there's genre conventions you have to be meeting. There's people who have expectations. You need red herrings and you need to know where to put them. (laughs) Yes, exactly. exactly. That terrifies me. (laughs) You need to know how the police work and like all this stuff. Uh, So, so, but then I was like, you know what? And this is when I was, you know, still coping with the fatigue and I was just like, oh, I don't know. So I was like, well, I'm interested in this. I'll give this a try. So yeah, I've written this, I've written this crime thriller that I'm actually pretty excited about and have started and now I'm just finishing a revision of it, but I've been starting to think about the next one and getting excited about that. And each time now that I've done a full manuscript, I've refined that I've been really analytical about my process and really refined my process. So How to Be Australian took me five and a half years. This current one that I mean, I'm technically still not done, but it's been two and a half years and I feel like it's pretty close. Um, so I'm hoping the next one will be under two years. That's exciting. I'm I'm working on under ten years. So uh. oh, <laughs> well, that's I mean that's my name is Revenge. From when I started it to when it was published was nine years. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I, yeah, you should you should be able to push it a bit faster. Yeah, you would think. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always other stuff going on in life though too, and I don't have children. Oh show. yes, well you know kids. There's that. <laughs> You're also producing this, you know, child. It's a fairly major thing that you're putting out to the world. I know. And you also have the podcast with James. Tell us about that. Ah, so uh, James and Ashley Stay at Home is the podcast I do with James Mackenzie Watson, and it's about writing, creativity, and health. James also has a chronic illness. He has chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. And so we were both interested in how that shapes our perspective uh, of ourselves and of the world. And, you know, there's a lot of other writers who engage with those kind of themes. We've interviewed 
a whole bunch of incredible Australian authors, you know, Elizabeth Tan, Nardi Simpson, Emily McGuire. We've interviewed international authors. We just released an episode with Sarah Santillis where we talk about creativity, which like was just a fantastic conversation. I've been saving that one up for my next walk. Oh, excellent, yes. excellent. Yeah, no, I she's, love her. she's incredible. She's such a good speaker, yeah. such a good speaker. Uh, so, yeah, so that's uh, that's available and we'd love to hear from listeners of, of our podcast. And then I also teach uh, writing and I'm, I have a couple courses coming up with like major organizations, but they haven't been announced yet. So just keep following me on social media. Okay, follow Ashley on social media and I will put all the links to all the places where you can find her in the show notes. Because if you if you are writing memoir, I'm going to be teaching memoir writing this year quite a bit. Oh, fantastic. So, oh, yes. that's so good to know. And you can learn about this scene business. <laughs> Are you going to yes. be teaching this special secret scene business? <laughs> yes, I'm all about I'm all about special secret scene business, and I've actually like Story Grid is is by this guy who I think probably should have been an engineer, but is a writer, and so he's like really really technical. So I've sort of simplified it into sort of like okay, here's how to approach this in a in a, in a simpler way. Um, and also, if you're absolutely a beginner memoir writer, I will be teaching a one hour intro workshop on Tuesday, February 22nd at 6.15 p.m. Sydney Melbourne time. Uh, that's online. And that's through Laneway Learning, which is a fantastic little uh, organization out of Melbourne. So I'd love to see you there. But that, that one is for real beginners. Uh, the, I'll have a few more courses coming up that'll be for, uh, for people with more experience in writing. Absolutely brilliant. So make sure you send me those links and I'll put them in the show notes. <laughs> I have one last question, Ashley Collagen Blunt. Yes. Do you feel Australian? I, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. I feel Canadian Australian. I feel like when I meet other North Americans who are also Australians, I feel that there's that sense of identity and belonging. I'm like, oh yes, I recognize this experience. So I feel like I'm in this, this subgroup. And I think really, I mean, that's the whole point of the book is like, what is Australian? Like there's, yeah. it's just so many different subgroups. And I, yeah, I do, I do really feel Canadian Australian and, and especially in the sense that if I went back to Canada now, I think I'd start to feel a bit lost there because I spent basically my entire adult life outside of Canada and, and the majority of it in Australia. So my experience of adulthood and navigating the world as an adult is, is Australian. Yeah, but Canada is part of who you are as well. Mm, and mm. I guess being hyphenated is the best possible outcome. Canadian hyphen Australian. I, <laughs> I get the best and the worst of both. You get worlds. the best and the worst. I know. I loved it in the notes at the back that where you say, actually, Winnipeg isn't that bad and you should all go and visit. <laughs> The thing is, it's actually got a lot better. I like they have this incredible Nordic spa, like which just oh. is gorgeous. You go there in the winter, and you're sitting in these like beautiful hot tubs, and the steam's just coming off the water. It's an incredible experience. But that's all new since I left. Yeah. So a good, a good friend of mine actually works for he worked for Tours in Winnipeg, and now he works for Travel Manitoba. And I feel, I feel like I don't know if he's read the book, but I feel like he'd be very upset with me. <laughs> I love that because Winnipeg does not get a great rap throughout the book, but in the uh, in the acknowledgements, I actually it made me feel like I should go and visit there sometime. 
Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'll, I'll direct him to those if uh, <laughs> he ever gets upset. Ashley, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been so delightful. We've known each other on social media only, and this is really the first time we've got to eyeball each other on Zoom and, and have a proper chat. And I've just, it's just been so delightful. Thank you. It has been wonderful eyeballing you, Michelle. Thank you. A wonderful way to kick off 2022. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I think this podcast is just so fabulous. So please keep up all your excellent, excellent interviews. There you go, Ashley Collagen Blunt. Isn't she wonderful? I really hope you got a lot out of her insights into writing memoir. You can find a link to Ashley's website in the show notes, along with a link to all the classes she mentioned. And I've also put a link to a story grid article in there that talks about the valence turns in scenes that Ashley was uh, discussing in our chat. And from there, you can explore the whole story grid concept and see if it's something that resonates with you. Okay, from memoir, we now turn to romance. My next guest is writer Penelope Janu. She's written six novels and a novella. Her novels are generally about clever, adventurous women who don't mean to fall in love, but do. And the men they fall in love with, well, there's always a story with them too. Penelope's novels are often set in the country, sometimes on the coast, and she always weaves in an interesting theme that acts as an external plot. Her characters are vets, environmental engineers, farriers, paediatric therapists. Honestly, I've learned so much from Penny's books about fascinating occupations I knew nothing about. And of course, she's very, very good at writing romance, and that is a genre I know many of you are interested in. We're going to be taking a deep dive into Penny's latest book, Clouds on the Horizon. This is the story of Phoebe Cartwright and the dashing Norwegian naval officer Sin Torrison who must work together to track down members of an illegal horse racing syndicate, which Phoebe's sister may have unwittingly been caught up in. There's plenty of intrigue, a gorgeous rural setting, and of course, a simmering romance. I'm so interested in how Penny juggles it all and gets it on the page. Now, I'm giving away, as always, a copy of this month's book. So uh, head over to Writers Book Club Instagram and Facebook accounts to enter and win a copy of Clouds on the Horizon by Penelope Janu. Entries close on February the 8th, but of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's a giveaway every month. So check the socials at the start of every month and uh, there'll be some fabulous book for you to win. A great way of staying in touch with what's happening is to subscribe to my newsletter too. I always include the giveaway in there, plus occasionally an extra sneaky giveaway, which is usually books, by the way, because books are my favourite thing to both give and receive. The newsletter is, I think you'll enjoy it. It's like tapas, small but tasty. I basically share the things I'm loving, what I'm watching, listening to and reading and a killer writing tip that I found useful over the previous month. So if you're interested in receiving that each month, you can sign up at michellebarraclough.com. There will also be a link to that in the show notes. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, and I really hope you are, I'd love it if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. A huge shout out to author Cassie Hamer, who left a gorgeous review on Apple. Thank you, Cassie. And shout out to Cassie too. She has a new book coming out in May called The Truth About Faking It, which looks fabulous. Um, Cassie's writing has been called a merging of writers like Marion Keyes, Leanne Moriarty and Sally Hepworth. Um, high praise indeed. So if you like those authors, go and find Cassie's books 
You can find her at cassiehamer.com. Okay, I think that's it for this month. As always, I recorded today's episode on the spectacular country I'm lucky enough to call home, the unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you next month. Until then, happy writing.